and welcome to yet another episode of the DevOps Speakeasy. My name is Baruch Sadogurski, head of um, DevOps Advocacy in JFrog. And as usual, with me today in my amazing virtual studio, my co-host Kent Cosgrove, developer advocate in JFrog. Yay! 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 And we have yet another amazing guest from hello, live hello. from Berlin. Yes. Hello. Um, okay, so the way it works... Uh, I need to do that. Here we go. The way the way it works is that we have one question that we know to to ask, and that question is who is Yelena? Everything else is not scripted. That's the only scripted part. So let's start with that. Yeah. So my name is Elena. I work for the company called Get Your Guide in Berlin, and I'm an engineering manager in the team. But main purpose and main goal is developer experience. Interesting. Developer experience. What what does it mean? Well, actually, I wanted to ask you, what do you think it means? Well, no, that's 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 our interview. We asked this question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> let's let's talk about that. What does developer experience mean? Kat, what does developer experience mean? Ooh, to me? Yes. Well, uh, I mean, I'm a developer advocate, so it, it might mean something different to me than it does to somebody who is an engineer full-time, oh, I guess, you, or an engineering an engineer. manager. You are in the role of developer advocate, but you are an engineer. But I am an engineer, yeah. Uh, I mean, to me, developer experience is controlling the way developers interact with your product or your platform or your tooling. Um, it's the, the developer version of UI UX. But I don't know if that's accurate from uh, Elena's point of view. For me, that's what it means as an engineer. Uh, for me, developer experience is whether or how productive the developers are with with the tools or the products that we make. And especially in JFrog, obviously we do tools for developers. So developer experience is how we actually should be managed. Uh, sorry, should be measured. Uh, I mean, if the tool helps developers being productive, it fulfills its purpose. And this is what developer experience is for me. It's broad, it's the UX, it's the documentation, it's the examples, is the, you know what, everything, talks that we give in a conference. So, um, yeah, that's that's a very broad for me, and it means whether we're doing our job good, basically. So are we right or wrong? Well, I definitely agree with you, but I would probably give a little bit more, like, a little bit wider explanation. I would say that developer experiences, everything that developers do, to deploy business value. Again, if we talk about DevOps culture, we know that our goal, our goal as a company is to deliver business value to our customers. And so whatever developers need to be able to do it is about developer experience. However, maybe I would give one more like tiny comment about it. I would say that, uh, yeah, you can say that, okay, for example, developers need to have meetings to discuss important things, but this is not developer specific uh, because like every, single person or almost every single person should have some meetings to discuss important topics. But if the topic is quite specific to developers, then I would say it's a part of developer experience. So it's everything that developers do to deliver business value, but it's about things that are specific for developers, but like differentiate developers for the rest of the, from the rest of the company. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and 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 take it as as broader as possible, but also limiting for limiting for developers. And I was I was uh, always thinking that developer experience is something that the companies that create tools for developers are concerned with, because in the end of the day, that's that's where developer experience is. 
how they use uh, the tools that we are producing. But is it so? Are the companies uh, which create product for end users like B2C, are, do they sh care about developers' experience? Should they? Well, I personally think as soon as your, your company is big enough, you should start uh, taking developer experience really seriously. As soon as you have quite a lot of developers who use different tools and who need to discover some best practices and yeah, just like the way how they should, can be more productive, as you said. So yeah, I believe that developer experience is just like for every company, <laughs> maybe ideally even for, for, for small companies, but I'm not sure if they have enough time and capacity for those questions. And uh, actually I have one more question for you. When do you think developer experience starts? So, okay. So first of all, to, to kind of, uh, to summarize if I understood you correctly, you say that the company should care about developer experience internally as an, as an internal project, right? So let's say, do our developers have the best hardware they need? Uh, are they more productive on, uh, you know what, are the chairs are comfortable that they, or, or standing desk or whatever. Uh, so it's, it's, kind of overlaps with with IT, with HR, with 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 everything else. So yes, again, if you talk about comfortable chairs or comfortable tables or desks, uh, it's something that everybody needs in the company. It's not important if you are a developer or if you are an engineer or if you are IT specialist or if you are human resources person, whoever you are, you need comfortable uh, place space. But uh, in fact, Yes, I would say developer experience is a little bit relevant to what office supplies do, what uh, teams who support all the people in the company do. However, again, uh, we need to be very focused on the things that differentiate developers from the rest of the company. I will, I will answer that I think it starts at onboarding. Yeah, that's like in t t time, uh, maybe even before, maybe the, the interview. I think yeah. that's that makes sense as well because you know what if you can show uh, your the good developer experience from the start as a part of your company culture during your interview you will definitely be able to hire uh, to hire better people for less money. Yes, I I totally agree with you and uh, yeah, I I also believe so I believe that so developer experience starts when you interview people and now I definitely see that you are perfect specialists <laughs> in developer experience because you like uh, you thought about it. You thought that developer experience doesn't start on the first day of the engineer in the company. It starts before. And even if we like, yeah, of course we need to find the right people and uh, we need to find the right specialists. But for example, before they start working, even before onboarding, we need to make sure that we prepared all sort of access for them, that we need to set up all the tools they might need. And that from their first day, they might just get their laptops and uh, like ideally automatically set up everything they might need to start working. All the services we will work with, all the dependencies we need, all the software we might need. I think the reason why I kind of get it because uh, I don't think there is any difference at all between developer relations and developer experience. I'll tell you more. Uh, I think those are two different names for exactly the same, the same thing. Developer relations is what we do developer experience is what we try to achieve. So in the end of the day, it's, it's, it's exactly the same. We want the developers to be more productive, uh, period. That's 
That's developer relations, and I think that's exactly what developer experience also means. Kat, you want you want to rename us as developer experience? Mm. I can do that. I still need a new fake title like yours. <laughs> you so, the chief sticker officer, yeah. Yeah, yeah, chief sticker officer. I need a I need a better fake title. So we can think about something in developer developer experience. Yeah. <laughs> De- developer experience queen at JFrog. <laughs> Thing that can work. Yeah, I um, I do think they're related, though. I I agree. Um, what we do as developer advocates, our our goal is to improve the developer experience. So I don't know that we're necessarily the same thing, but I think uh, we're we're related. There's a lot of overlap. So interesting, Yelena. How what is your relation to developer to developer experience, except of just being excited about it? <laughs> yeah. So. Uh... Our team is internal team, so we are trying to consider specific developer journey of engineers in our company from the way how we start or even before we start working for the company. And uh, then it becomes quite periodical because we need to like yeah, develop services, deploy them to production, deliver value. And uh, so basically every step or every typical action that developers might need to make we should be responsible for delivering them the best experience, the best infrastructure, the most suitable tooling, something like that. So yeah, we, we are focused on a very specific people, I would say, because there are not a lot of uh, engineers, obviously, much less when uh, comparing to a situation when you have an external product with yourself. I would say this is the biggest difference. Because uh, is it different? I mean, in the end of the day, what you do is is, is you do developer relations. But it's 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 internal, right? So you want to improve the life of your developers inside your company, but also a little bit external. We spoke about how a better uh, developer experience or developer relations can help uh, hiring and definitely help HR as the well-being of um, of the engineers um, that that you that you already have. So um, and and you know how there there are. Uh, communities that only do developer relations for hiring, and that's that's an anecdote that I love to uh, to tell. How, uh, for example, in um, East Europe, um, since they don't have a lot of product development for developers, they still do DevRel for for hiring and for recruiting purposes. And this is a little bit uh, like what you're doing. So, um, I don't think it's different. I think you are in DevRel. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, personally, I still consider myself as an engineer, and uh, yeah, especially our teams because again, our goal is to, of course, deliver the best experience. But still, we offer engineering solutions for those experiences. But in fact, yes, we do a lot of user research, for example, and we do customer journeys with our engineers. So it's like developing a product inside a company. But our customers are quite specific. So, what's your uh, what's your ideal technical interview? If you think that this starts in the interviewing process, what's what does your ideal interview look like for an engineer? Oof, <laughs> that's quite a complicated question for me. I would say because all the people are different and all the interviews are very different. Um, I would say I'm mostly excited when I meet someone who had some interesting experience or someone who learned something or tried something I've never tried. So something like when I see a person, I can 
learn from, I'm mostly excited. And yeah, it's not important. Like I, I like the interviews that are just set in a friendly atmosphere. And when you just have like more like a conversation and when you feel that either you share same principles and same values, or maybe it's a person of, of some other sort of culture, let's say engineering culture. Yeah, that, so. that's what this interview is interesting to you. But what is what is the good interview for uh, for the candidate? How do you improve developer experience in such an early stage? Yeah, I would say it's absolutely the same. The uh, person who comes to, to the interview also should feel comfortable and welcomed. And uh, if you talk about questions, uh, the questions shouldn't be like stressful, the question should be the ones that can show what developer can actually offer. And uh, yeah, like, for example, I don't think that uh, a lot of technical questions might help to clarify what are the values or what are what what is the unique value that uh, this engineer can offer. So you uh, are or are not in favor of things like uh, whiteboarding interviews where you ask a senior engineer to do something like well, I've never done it and I'm not sure if I can do it myself. So I definitely will never ask uh, anyone to do something I'm not uh, like I'm not uh, comfortable with or something I don't use uh, in my like real life and my real work. I prefer to ask questions about experience, uh, maybe yeah, about some projects or maybe about some interesting situations that people had because yeah, for me, this is the most valuable. I appreciate I hope that your preferred method of interviewing technical candidates takes off in the U.S. because here it is uh, extremely common to ask kind of gotcha technical type questions like that in whiteboarding interviews. And it's uh, it doesn't actually tell you anything about how the candidate is going to do their job, in my opinion, because well, so why? I completely agree with you, but let me be a devil's advocate here for a second. Um, is there is there a difference between the the questions that you ask, let's say, or be beginner or maybe a mid level engineer, and the questions that you ask someone who you bring to solve hard computer science problems? Well, what is important for me for every question is to understand why I ask it. I feel that sometimes during the interviews some questions are just asked because these are the questions who, who 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 like the questions which are asked by anyone by any company by, by any team but this is not my approach i first of all i need the purpose what i want to learn when i ask this question and then yeah i make a question and uh for example i probably will ask different things uh if i see a person who just uh, finished education it's not important if it was like a self-education or if it was like a it university or something like that but i, I see that uh, this person might have some fresh knowledge but might not have a lot of experience so in this case i will probably mostly ask uh, yeah some simple questions based on the knowledge um, just to again see how the person thinks, uh, what the person can bring. But if I see a more experienced person, I will probably mostly ask about experience. Well, that makes sense. But uh, I mean, you know how you know how it is. It's kind of easier to bullshit through your achievements and experience than to actual technical questions. I think one of the reasons people ask hard technical questions is that. You either know the answer or, you know, at least you are on the right track to get an answer. You have a right way of solving those kind of questions or, or you don't. Well, I can partly agree. Um, but again, when I ask a question, I don't stop 
on, on this one question. I will see how the person answers. And then based the, on the answer, I will ask again and again and again. And if the person starts telling me something about, I don't know, some fancy experience with fancy technologies, I will ask some particular questions. And at the end of uh, this situation, if I see what person tries to, to show that uh, this person has really, really nice experience and a lot of knowledge, I will ask something technical just to check how deeply can I go something like that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That is, uh, that is reasonable and everything. But I mean, only to hear a couple of phrases or, oh, those are my achievements and I did that and I did this and that, I think that might be not enough. But again, it's really dependent on, on, on what's the level of, of the... Um, what, what's the level of the of the person you are interviewing? Obviously, solve this with an algorithm won't help you uh, <laughs> figure out a potential of someone, but it can show you whether what they have on their resume is bullshit or not. But where's the line? Like, there's a point where asking somebody like a super hard technical question is not actually helpful. It's just mean, like. If, if I walked into an interview and somebody like hit me with a traveling salesman or something, I would be insulted. Like that's rude because it's not, it's performative. There's no, there's no actual point there. So I think some people obviously do it for wrong reasons. Some people are doing it just to feel good about themselves, that they know something that you don't. Some people just do it to humiliate people who are coming and just show them that they are smarter. This obviously sucks, right? I mean, there is no... No other way to uh, to put it, but um, I think there might be some good uh, questions that actually show how smart person is, which are technical or semi-technical, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'll give you an example. I now read a, a book called Range, and um, it's it's the opposite of, and I will mention in the show notes, of course, it's it's the opposite of the. Uh, Outliers book, uh, which is obviously well-known, Malcolm Gladwell, that speaks about how specialization is important, 10,000 hours of practice and all that. So range is the the antithesis to that. It's about how actually being broad is more important than deeper specialization. It's all about DevOps, by the way, if if you you (laughs) hear me right. Um, Every... Almost every book in the universe is about DevOps. But um, so um, what they speak about is how you remember those annoying questions, how many piano tunes there are in New York? Yeah. This is like super annoying and shouldn't be asked in the interview. Super annoying. Well, he claims that it's actually a very good idea because it doesn't matter what answer you give. It's the way of thinking that can be tested through those kinds of questions. Sure. But I think that's only, it's only acceptable to do that if you explain, like make it clear to the candidate that you don't expect them to solve the problem, that you want to see what process they go through to try to get an answer where, how quickly they realize that something isn't working and move on to another avenue of attack and or whatever, but you should you should make it clear that like the goal is not to get an answer. The goal is for me to see how you're thinking because I think uh, at least from my experience talking to a shitload of junior engineers, they think they are always supposed to solve it, and it creates a lot of uh, emotional problems, a lot of unnecessary stress, and maybe because they they get the question and they know they can't solve it, they immediately fall fall apart because they think they're supposed to, and they can't even 
try anymore because they're just crushed as soon as they walk into the interview. And that sucks. That's that's shitty. So if you're going to use questions like that, I think you have to make it clear that getting a solution is not the point. Elena, what say you? Yeah, I, I agree. I definitely agree. Especially, again, if you talk about developer experience from the developer side, what you get when you have this question, first of all, you, you're you probably like, if you are quite new for interviews or if you don't do a lot of interviews, your first reaction will be just stress. And yeah, when you are stressed, you cannot think normally. And so it's like, of course, it might be a good uh, exercise or a good check. But on the other hand, in fact, we don't really check developers for like how how we can handle stress because normally developers shouldn't have stress. And again, this is a part of developer experience story to make developer journey as less stressful as possible. Hiring, going through interviews and what's not is a stressful exercise by definition. And I understand the mismatch that yes, here people are under stress, on a normal day-to-day work they shouldn't be, and checking their performance on the interview in the stress doesn't necessarily predict future performance in a normal, calm uh, environment when you have Stack Overflow that will solve all, all, all your problems in life. So w- what is the answer? How can you predict the future performance if the interview environment is so different than what they're going to work, what they're going to experience in real life. Articles about it and all those articles were actually very scientific. So there were even research what kind of questions can predict productivity of developers and cannot predict. And uh, yeah, it's. I think there is not like one clear single answer, but probably I can send you links and you can <laughs> add them <laughs> to show notes for people who are interested. Personally, what I personally like, actually, I like a tiny ex- exercise that developers can do before the interview when they feel comfortable, but this exercise shouldn't take more than, let's say, 45 minutes. I like it's those not- too a lot. That's like very preferred way to go through a technical interview some kind of like short time box like an hour max that's i think that's great and then you do it before the interview and during the interview you can actually discuss what you did and what solutions did you come uh, to and and why that's what my interview was like at jfrog actually yeah i also prefer this approach when it's possible and uh, i believe if you hire a person to like do quite a specific job, you should be able to come up with a task that is doable in less than an hour. And then, yeah, the way how the developer solves it will show you a lot about this developer. And again, uh, it, it is also important to clarify that I don't expect this task fully done with, I don't know, integrational tests, with unit tests, with documentation and with everything. Uh, the most important for me is to see how the person thinks what the person thinks is the most important to to be done in 45 minutes let's say and then yes we can just discuss the rest of the topics during the interview i think what we kind of agreed is that you need to make sure that the stress is minimized and then i guess mostly by uh, by managing expectations and just clarify that we don't expect uh, perfect results we don't re- expect perfect solutions and what we just want to do is get to know each other. That was interesting and insightful when it comes to when it comes to the interview. Does the developer experience include maybe even let's go even one step one step uh, uh, before the interview? How about the public image of the company? You want people to work for your company? Does is that a part of developer experience? 
Yeah, again, I think here we can easily overlap with techno PR things and all the other similar stories that are not about, let's say, developer experience in terms of tooling and in terms of um, like practices, for example. But yeah, I think it is also important. Um, However, again, if you talk about it, we probably talk about the developer experience that starts before developer joins the company. And uh, yeah, however, again, it depends. Now, I think we can switch from the topic of developer experience to the topic what motivates people and what motivates developer and what, developers and why it motivates them. So it's a little bit quite personal, quite specific for different people because, uh, again, introverts are motivated by Something extroverts are motivated by something else and not for everyone is important. It is important that the company, I don't know, have a lot of uh, public talks and supports a lot of conferences and something like that. It's not what you care about as, as someone in charge of developer experience in your organization. Well, I would say I care about it because in principle, I find this topic important. And again, as an engineering manager, I should be responsible for those stories as well. All the senior engineers and all the managers are kind of responsible for uh, like, yeah, the way how the company looks like for for the rest of the world. So yeah, but uh, for example, if you talk about uh, engineers of, of our team, uh, they don't have to contribute to that. They only can contribute to that if we want. If we want to open source something they built or if we want to speak at a conference or I know, write a blog post, of course, it is very welcome. I understand that's kind of the, um, on the on a little bit on the side of, of you, what you actually are responsible for. So let's talk about what you are responsible. You ask ask questions and we took it very broadly, but that's our, our distortion is because we work for a company that do tools for developers. So for us, developer experience is about the quality of those tools. For, for the company that just uh, employs developers, it's probably different. So what, what are you doing? What, what is your daily life? What you care about? How do you measure it? Tons of interesting questions. Yeah, what we are mostly focused on is day-to-day uh, -day experience of developers which is related to, as I said before, to the delivery of the business value for the customers. So it's mostly about the way how we write software, what we do, how do we develop new features locally, then how do we test it, how do we send it to production, and how the whole story works in general. So yes, it's a lot of things about tooling that developers choose for development, uh, for continuous integration, for all sorts of linting, tests, uh, like, uh, yeah, then continuous delivery and continuous deployment, and maybe even a little bit about uh, what is running in production. However, of course, for that, we have a dedicated team, site reliability engineers. And uh, I would say this is how, how also I can explain what we are doing. Site reliability engineers are responsible for everything that is on production and what is running and what should be actually yeah, be uh, available for the customers. And our team is responsible for the tools that help developers bring their ideas, their value to production. So in the end of the day, it's, it's mostly about the tools, right? Well, I'm trying personally not to be focused on the tools because it's also a lot about practices. Again, if you call, if you talk about DevOps, we typically don't talk about tools. Of course, we do talk about tools, but we consider tools as implementations of some techniques or practices or some approach. So we are trying to not to be very focused on tools, but we are trying to mostly focus on actual experience of developers. For example, what uh, I was trying to do a few times and what I'm going to do actually next, next week is to just grab a few people and do customer journey with them and just to check how we start developing, let's say, a new microservice and then what happens uh, 
during the each step before the microservice is delivered. And what is also important is to uh, ask people from different teams, and for example, not only ask uh, backend developers, but also ask frontend developers, how does it look for them? Or also ask mobile developers, what kind of experience do they have and what kind of needs do they have or what kind of problems? So it's I would say it's about problem solving, um, not about tools. And uh, sometimes uh, you need to solve a problem with just like a new good practice or with this simplification of a process, but not with a tool. Well, that makes sense. And I think that's kind of the job of any manager, right? Removing obstacles in the in the life of the developer. I think about our boss. This is yeah. what, what he does as well, right? His job is to remove the obstacles and move aside to make to, to, to let us do our job. Yeah. Uh, so is it something that is a part of every manager's focus? Or do we need like um a dedicated, uh, I don't know if position or maybe some kind of a, a title for, for that specifically. I mean, isn't it just job definition of every engineering manager? Um, I would say yes and no. In principle, our company is very customer specific. I think this is the most customer specific company I've ever seen in my life. And so every team and every engineer and just like every person is uh, very interested in delivering the value to the customers. But I would say engineering managers of uh, the teams who work for product, they are mostly interested in, in that uh, part of job where they are focused, first of all, on the delivering uh, the value to, to, to the customers. Of course, we also have uh, team health as a part of their responsibilities, and uh, they are focused on that. But again, um, I think it's good when you have a dedicated team who can spend more time on that and who can be focused on that and who can go to different teams and very different parts of the company and ask about experience of different engineers. So, okay, so what is, who do you work? I understand that you ask, you said you do, you're doing a focus group, right? So you now ask the engineer, okay, how is it to, to write a microservice? And they go like, oh, it's horrible. We need to ask permissions to create a new repo in the source control. And then it takes a week for them to actually approve it. And then we finally have the repo and we check in the code, but we cannot bring any any dependencies because everything is firewall because they're afraid of, of, of security. So it's a pain in the ass. And then eventually <laughs> we somehow manage to do that, but then we cannot commit anything because the, the pull request taking ages to to get approved because everybody need to look at it. Uh, okay, now what do you do? Well, yeah, first of all, I would say I do it a little bit differently. Uh, first of all, I ask about the steps that people need to do towards reaching production without pain points, without concerns, just what we would do normally. And then uh, the second, uh, like the second line, let's say, the second question is what are your expectations? For example, what do you expect from each step? For example, if I start developing, I expect that I can create a repository, or if I want to deliver on testing cluster, I expect that I have enough permissions to do it. Then the next question is actually yes, about fears or about pain points. What what are your current pain points? Um, okay, let's say I don't always have permissions I need. And then, yeah, we also write it down. It, it is called, yeah, the customer journey. It's like a table, a matrix you can use. And then just asking different questions, you can understand what is the the biggest pain of, of people, of engineers in this case. And I especially like the last step of this um, because 
during the last step, you ask about feelings. How do you feel? And you can feel very positively or you can feel very negatively. And you can even like make graph that sh shows how positively or negatively people feel. And then based on that, you can understand what are the main pain points. Then you need to identify if this is a pain point of uh, this specific engineer or if, if it's something like broad. And then you can choose what you want to solve first. Yeah, something like that. I don't think I've ever had that at work before. Um... Like, it sounds kind of similar to what I would expect to get out of like a one on one with my manager, but for the whole team. And I kind of I kind of like that. Yeah, no, but here this is why I ask how it is different from like a normal just, you know, engineering manager. Uh, because as Kat mentioned, I would expect my manager to ask me about obstacles that they see in my work. And in the end of the day saying, well, they are customer focused, but instead they need to be, uh, there have to be someone who is in, focused on the engineer. I think it's, it's the same thing. I think in the end of the day, if I struggle to create this new microservice, the customer won't get what they need. So... I mean, I still have hard time distinguishing between the two. A lot of information from engineering managers, because of course we do uh, like health checks with people to understand uh, if people have enough tools, if everything works correctly, if their hardware is good enough to work on their, the things we need to deliver. And actually, yes, engineering managers quite often give us a lot of information of what needs to be improved. But sometimes it's like when you look, uh, when you are inside of a situation and you look from inside, you sometimes don't see something that might be even better. And I, I believe that uh, our approach helped to identify some hidden things that in fact are quite important. So you, you say you, you sit with the engineers and you, you ask them what is the, pro what is the process and then you compare it with what their ideal process should be. And then you ask them, namely for, uh, for uh, pain points. And then you obviously try to eliminate it. And then you sit with their managers and ask what they heard. And if it actually matches. Um, and then what? How do you well, influence the organization to actually change that? Well, I would say luckily managers typically come to us first. As soon as they see that there is something wrong or there is something that is too slow and that should be faster. So typically it's engineering managers who come to us, but yeah, we also try, of course, to ask them sometimes, how do you feel now? What do you see now if, if everything is, is, is right or wrong? Then, yeah, um, depends on the problem. If the problem is big, it might be like even like a new project. If the problem is not that big, then, then yeah, we are just trying to find a quick solution that would help. And quite often, quick solutions are enough. And uh, yeah, quite often, some problems are quite specific. For example, there is a problem that is specific for only, only front-end engineers or only for mobile engineers who work with a specific uh, platform. But yeah, anyway, we are trying to find the best way to solve it. So it's a collaborative thing. It's not, you couldn't do your job with effectively without the engineering managers in between you and the engineers. I, I've never thought about it, actually. And again... I don't know, maybe it's a cultural thing, but uh, we, we don't require, for example, engineering managers or we don't require engineering managers' approval to come to us. Uh, which developer can just come and ask any question or just complain about something. Or we, again, we are trying to go proactively. It's not always possible because our team, in fact, is relatively small. We mm -hmm. only have five people, <laughs> four <laughs> engineers and, 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 and myself. So 
yeah, gain a defense. But yeah, in principle, just like every engineer can book special time, like office hours with us and ask any question or, or propose some changes or something like that. What is, what is the ratio between, uh, between your team, the, the size of your team and the size of the engineering team in, in, the, in the entire organization? Oof, actually, I am not 100% sure if I know how many engineers do we have. I know that it's more than 100. So yeah, it's quite a lot of people for, for one developer experience person. So let's go back to to uh, my question earlier because I'm really curious about it. So so you learned about this stuff, okay? You learn about the obstacles that those engineers have. What what will be... Obviously, there are different solutions for, for, for everything, but maybe you can give us a couple of interesting examples of how you influence the organization to uh, to make the life of developers more uh, better and make them more productive um how do you how do you convince uh, probably pretty op- opinionated people that uh, obviously they do what they do not because they're mean they do what they do because they believe that their concerns are 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 justified and uh, maybe some inconvenience in this uh, in the life of those spoiled um Divas who are the developers is is something right. that is uh, mostly justified because you know security is more important than them not not being able to wait for one day. They will wait. No one will die. Everything will be fine. But we will be able to verify whatever concern you want to verify. How do you how do you answer that? Okay, I'm trying to understand what you asked. <laughs> if you could give me a better example, probably yeah, I would yeah. give you so a better obviously, answer. But, but I, it's your world. I, I I don't know the exact examples, but I can think about some made up made up examples. So let's say, and this is something that we are familiar with. You have a security people who won't allow uh, using external de- dependencies before they actually go ahead and vet of them manually. Obviously, it's a huge pain from a developer experience perspective, right? You cannot do anything before you have approved that this dependency is, is okay. It takes days, if not weeks. And in the meanwhile, you actually cannot do anything unless you break the rules and bring this dependency somehow in your organization just to be able to be productive because this is what the developers want. So, and then you go to those people and they're like, nope, not gonna happen. Security is important. We have regulations. We need to make sure that all our dependencies are vetted. So no one can use anything before we check. By the way, we're also very busy. So um, SLA of three to four to uh, business days is fine for checking your dependencies. And uh, if those spoiled developers don't like it, it's their problem. Yeah, your example reminds me the company I worked before, <laughs> the <laughs> one where security was extremely important. But still, yeah, those questions are solvable because first of all, again, you need the right. To, in this case, you maybe need the right tools, but will help you automate some processes, at least to do some sanity checks or license checks in case of dependencies, and uh, again, processes. Um, Probably you have already a process to go through all those security things. And it is important that this process is transparent for all the engineers and that everybody understands why we have this process in place. If not, then it means that something should be either changed in this process or in the way how people are onboarded to this process. Interesting. So what you are saying is not always necessarily do what the developer think is right, but somehow also educate them that the process is 
in place being maybe annoying and uncomfortable is actually the right thing to do. And this is something that we just need to make ourselves comfortable with. Um, I would say you need some core values or guiding principles when you have questions like this. And so you can then uh, yeah, mention these principles and explain why you have this process or this step. And again, in our case, our biggest value is our customers. And uh, so, for example, if you have a process that doesn't look comfortable for developers, the question is always, do we have, do we help, uh, like, or do, do we help our customers to have the best experience with our product or, or, or don't we? In case of you have a security check, does this security check protect our customers or is it just a bureaucracy if it is done to protect the customers then of course everybody understands what is, it is valuable just because this is like a core value for everyone yeah i agree there's a process in place that's really annoying for me as a developer if how i react to that is going to vary pretty widely based on the reason for that process if it is just red tape if there is no real reason for it and it's just because this other department that has to be involved is super territorial, then I'm going to be mad about it. I'm going to be really annoyed. If there is a tangible benefit to this irritating process, like it's important for security or it's important for the customer experience, then I'm probably going to be way less annoyed, especially if it's something I was aware of in advance. Like if to use Baruch's example, I'm just like surprised with a four day wait to get some dependency approved. That sucks because that's potentially causing, that's causing problems for me, obviously, because I can't ship this feature, but it's potentially causing problems for other people later down the line that are depending on my code, my ability to use that dependency. But if I knew in advance that there was going to be like a four or five day wait to get some dependency approved, then I can just include that in my estimate. You know, I can plan for that. But if it's both uh, pointless and it comes out of nowhere, I'm going to be really mad about it. Again, I think we talk now about the culture of a particular company. And actually, if the company has this sort of culture, I would ask if they actually have DevOps culture or is it a wall between different departments? So, yeah, if, and for what is important for me that... Uh, is, is that uh, like any developer, any engineer, and actually any person in the company should be able to complain about the process that they think is not good or that is broken. And like, for example, if you don't have enough people in security to check dependencies, maybe you just need more people. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, so um, I would like to ask you maybe, and that's just my personal curiosity, some, some kind of success story when you actually managed to improve the developer experience um, significantly, maybe by, uh, by you know by doing something, by by convincing someone, by changing this process or another. Um, this is just this is just interesting to hear. Yeah, let me think a little bit. <laughs> I'm actually relatively new in in the current company, so I think. I've only was involved to quite small processes, but for example, we are constantly trying to improve developer experience on their local machines and uh, yeah, to make sure that they can use all the dependencies we need and that uh, those dependencies will not eat all the memory and all the CPU of their machines. So for example, like uh, making a hybrid environment was, was a good thing, I would say. Again, it's a story of uh, like splitting monolith to microservices. You had one monolith, but you was able you were able to run it on your machine, and then you have microservices, and each one is running in the container. And at the moment when you need to run, I don't know, let's say ten containers, your machine starts working slowly, mm -hmm. and you need to solve this particular problem. So yeah, I would mention this as an example. So 
uh, we we spoke about processes and people and how to uh, change that, but maybe the the low hanging fruits are are completely technical, right? Maybe uh, re rearranging how your application works or picking the right tools for a development environment might be as influential as convincing the security department that they need to make their checks differently. Well. I, I agree. Again, you need to choose the pain points and prioritize and understand what pain points are the biggest ones. And uh, even if you found the biggest pain points, the question is how doable it is. Do you have enough capacity to deliver it? How much time would it take to deliver it? And then, yes, it's like, it's again, it's like a matrix. It's not uh, only one um, way to choose what is the most important or like what, the biggest pain point is not always something you would do the first because yeah you just might not might not have enough capacity right now and you might see that instead of that big question you might solve five other smaller questions that together will bring the same value as one big question it's, it's exactly like devops you like devops transformation you look for the low-hanging fruits you look for uh, for the, the the biggest wins for the smallest amount of effort, you start small, you uh, walk before you run. Those are all the same principles that we we are considering when we thinking about DevOps transformation. So we're we're back to DevOps anyway. There's everything no DevOps, as it turns out, it's DevOps all the way down. Everything, everything in this universe is DevOps. I can whatever <laughs> topic you throw on me, I can convince you in thirty seconds how it relates to DevOps. Yeah. Yep. Pretty much. Um, and uh, here, lo look at me. Now, let's talk about Go as a programming language. And it's very relevant to DevOps because DevOps is about delivering faster and performing better, which is obviously now we know done on microservices uh, more often than not in the cloud native environment. And the language to do that is, is Go. So here you go. This is how Go related to DevOps, and this is how it relates to developer experience. And um, I'm talking about Go because, Yelena, you're well known in the Go community. You were a co-host of a very popular uh, Go podcast that you will share with us in a second. And I understand that now your focus switched, but tell us a little bit. Are you still doing something, learning something, talking about something? How is the podcast? Yelena and Go, Go. Oof, all the tricky questions. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, when I switched to that manager role, I find out found out that I have less time for actual development or for, and for Go itself, but still I like Go a lot and I still like the community a lot and I see a lot of value that Go can bring. So I'm trying to share my experience um, in, in workshops, uh, yeah, just uh, like making talks for conferences. And yes, actually, our podcast was the first Go podcast in the world. I how, think it was started. Called? So for people can find it, and we'll obviously put it in show notes as well. Yeah, it is called Golang Show. Um, one of the specifics about this podcast is that most of the episodes are in Russian, but some of them are in English. So I thought in Go. Most of the episodes are in Go. <laughs> and yes, of course. Well, I, I think if you compare the number of uh, words. But you can hear in this podcast, then yes, most of those are in Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a question about then. I, I write some Go. I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I do write some Go. And uh, I it was actually my first compiled language, which is maybe embarrassing to admit. I uh, Before that, I wrote like exclusively Python and JavaScript. But 
what is the weirdest thing you've run into with Go as a language? Like, what what is the most bizarre design choice for the language, in your opinion? Oof, <laughs> tricky questions. I'm afraid if I uh, answer it wrongly, I might get some enemies. Oh, no, I'm community. sure that everybody's got an opinion, so. Well, I would say what I didn't like when I started working with Go is the way how dependency management looked like. And it yeah. was, I think, something like five years ago. So there were not any approach to dependency management at that time. And yes, that, what, that was frustrating for me. Uh, you I see, you see everything is about DevOps and dependency management. Yeah. There is no, no escape. I think every episode of the DevOps Speakeasy, we end up talking about dependency management and how it sucks at large. Uh, but we also actually uh, spoke about Go dependency management in particular, what it was like um, two, three episodes ago, um, we spoke with Sam Boyer, who is the obviously author of of, of Go uh, Go Dep, and uh, this is where where it all started to change in Go. Yeah, yeah. I I think Go Dep was a very important project for that particular topic. Yeah. So well, now we are obviously in a completely different stage by now, um, and the Go um, the Go modules are officially out there in the language. There are uh, there is support both from tooling internal like all the gold toolchain, but also external. There are uh, repositories that support it and and central proxies and what's not. So, uh, is it problem solved like completely now? You're good and satisfied with dependency management in Go. Well, again, I haven't wrote a lot of things in Go recently, but what I had last time. Uh, my experience was the following. If I need to start a new project with fresh dependencies, with fresh versions of the libraries, and I use uh, Go modules, everything just works. But as soon as I open an old project and legacy monolithic application that needs a lot of dependencies and some weird versions of those dependencies, I immediately jump into some problems with hash sums, with uh, weird numbers of versions or weird, weird versions that are not in the registry. And yeah, it's, it, it still might be painful from my experience. But it's 10 years of, of, of legacy and very diverse legacy, 18 community-grown dependency management, everything does something different. Obviously, it's very, very hard to create any kind of reliable backwards compatibility to all this zoo of dependency managers that existed before Go modules. But I think they're on the right track. So next, um, next we need to fix uh, generics and uh, oh, what else? Please. Please fix generics. <laughs> I will oh, not give any comments Yes, here. generics and exception handling. Yes. <laughs> my my opinion here is not popular, so I will not give any comments. Uh, yeah, no, you do, you do. Oh, Unpopular opinions. This is what we do in this podcast. What do you think about generics take. and exceptions? To be honest, uh, since I started using Go, I've never need, needed generics. I needed some code generation a couple of times to not to just like, yeah, implement the same thing twice or multiple times. But yes, I, I just sold it as code generation and it, it was just a couple of stories. And uh, yeah, if you talk about exceptions, I now I actually like that approach uh, when, when you work with errors as values instead of exceptions. And I found out, for example, recently I had to write some Python code and I found out that I started writing in Python in the, way, in the same way how I wrote in Go. It's uh, just like trying to return some errors instead of raising exceptions. Yeah, Python handles it a little bit uh, differently. I actually do like the, uh, the errors as values thing. I just think that the, the syntax is ugly. But uh, that's a result of having come over from Python, where we have, you know, 
try accepts or raising an error. So it's just, I don't know, maybe it's a what was your first love kind of thing. So the the way Go handles it is always going to be a little bit weird for me personally. We all have our own Stockholm syndrome to this or another language that we kind of... It's true. Yeah, yeah. It's true, yeah. Is yours is yours Java? Well, no. I think that uh, that there are uh, the concept of checked exceptions in in Java backfired. I understand what why why it existed, and I think that there are um, a lot of good reasons to do it. But the way uh, it actually used in the real world is horrible. Um, it's uh, most of the time you uh, all you do with checked exceptions is try to convert them to runtime exceptions, which mm-hmm. kind of it's it's not only that you waste your time and effort to do that, you actually defeat the intent of whoever used the checked exception for a good reason. Because the whole idea of checked exceptions was, hey, this is something that you need to take care of, as opposite to other stuff that you don't need to take care of. When whoever wrote this code intended for you to take care of this dependency, and instead all you do is try to avoid it because you don't like the syntax this is just this is just fucked up right you you miss you entirely miss the point of why this exception was created in the first place so uh, as opposite if they didn't exist then everything is runtime exception and then it's up to you to decide whether you want to handle it or not so it is it is a little bit um obviously um uh, it's 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 wrong and bad and there is no I don't even see a good solution for that right now. That's not my problems. They they will deal with it or not. It's somebody else's problem. Definitely someone else's problem. Yeah. But well, if, if I was thinking about it, language design now, checked exceptions was definitely not on my list of the features to have. <laughs> what is important for me if we talk about errors or exceptions are two things. It's uh, the context. What was this error or exception about and the place or the responsibilities? Who is responsible to handle this exception or not to handle this exception? Because again, at the end of the day, why do we need all those things? We need them because of observability, because we want our applications being observable. And if something happens, we need to see what happens and why. And yeah, to be able to either reproduce the problem with uh, case that or, or just do something with it at least. This is a very good point, and this is a very good look at things because this is not what we kind of used to, right? Because uh, it's a it's a new way of looking at things. We didn't consider observability as the pr- as the primary purpose for us raising exceptions before uh, the whole cloud native observability and DevOps. Our idea was whether you can somehow handle it in uh, in the application itself or show some kind of a meaningful error to a user now when we switch the main the main purpose of exceptions to be handled automatically by observability systems it's changed it changes a lot of how we should actually think about it so this is interesting yes yes it's like a different world i would say and just different way but but it helps a lot again what i'm trying to do always when i don't understand something i'm trying to ask myself why why do i need it or why i don't need it why should i handle this exception or handle this error what it will bring me will i have any value in some corner case if i do it 
So, okay. So if we even think about exceptions as something that is consumed by observability tools and they need to be handled automatically or to the best extent of the system that we work with, what does it mean? What is, what is the right approach then? Oof. I, to be honest, I don't really believe in the possibility to handle all the exceptions automatically because sometimes you need to react on them in a quite specific way, let's say. Sometimes you even need to crash your application. Again, if we talk about cloud-native applications, okay, you just crashed your instance of application and then the new instance just appeared immediately. So, yeah, but sometimes you don't need to stop your application when you got an exception. It might be just something you can work with, especially if you have some context to work or some jobs to like finish. So I, I'm afraid there is not one single answer. Yeah, well, that makes sense. There are no simple answers. We, we already figured that out so much. Um, so, uh, yeah. So what else, what else didn't we speak about, Kat? What, what, what other questions we have? For Yelena, both on developer experience or Orgo and DevOps, because everything is there. Everything is DevOps, that's true. So uh, I think we covered everything I wanted to hear about yeah, personally, yeah. unless you have a hot question. No, I think I think that's all. Yelena, everything else you we, we didn't ask you and and you wanna you wanna share with us uh er, anything, anything you that you passionate about and we didn't speak about? Well, I think you asked about metrics and I actually didn't answer. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm used to the question of how are you measured as being digit because, you know, people hate to talk about it either because no one measures anything or just because what you are measured and what you are doing are completely unrelated. But if you feel comfortable to tell us about how this magical unicorn thing of developer experience is measured, that would be very interesting to hear. What we were trying to do recently, we were trying to just get metrics from the Accelerate book and just implement them and start measuring yeah, performance of developers uh, via the way what is described in that book. I'm afraid we are still in a very MVP phase because some of those metrics might be quite specific, especially because different teams might have quite different way to deploy uh, their values their products. But in general, I, I like that idea and I like that. And I also think, I believe that it is important to measure, um, not just try to deliver something and not just try to improve something, but also to measure and understand if things you are doing actually improve people's life or just make it more complicated. <laughs> well, that makes sense. But I would argue that what you measure is not, well, it's obviously related because you measure DevOps metrics and everything is DevOps, uh, but um, you don't measure necessarily developer experience because um, you might have a horrible de de uh, developer experience, but still doing quite well on the overall DevOps metrics and the other way around. The developer experience might be great. They might be super productive and the bottleneck that um, screws up your DevOps metrics is is somewhere else. Well, I would say let's go back to our values and our purpose and we want to deliver uh, like the best customer experience first. And then it means that if we see that there is a problem with deliveries and if it's not about developer experience still, we should be responsible for raising that problem. However, I actually cannot imagine the situation when there is a problem and it's not about developer experience. Again, I would say, yes, it's like when you measure something, there are typically multiple 
uh, like variables that go to that measurement. For example, if you have a team of people who work together for a few years, of course, we are more productive than the same team who just got a couple of new engineers. As soon as we get new people, they become a little bit slower first. But this is also something we understand because, again, we understand the correlation between the number of people in the team or between starting dates in the team and between their way to like deploy something. And this is also about uh, developer experience. For example, how much time does it take to onboard a new person to the team? How quickly do you expect a new engineer to be productive? Do you expect them to like get onboarded and then be producing actual production code within a couple of weeks? Or... Do you think it typically takes takes longer? Well, again, in fact, it depends. I know a few engineers who just started delivering their values on the second day, just because, yes, we can just offer an environment that is ready, that have all the necessary software. And so you, and, but, but even check out automatically all the repositories you need. So you just need to go through the very initial documentation and then your manager will give you a simple task and then yeah you become productive of course it will take more time to learn everything especially about some complicated services again especially if we talk about some legacy systems uh, but uh, i would say we don't have like uh, this is not our purpose to uh, make everyone being delivery like make everyone to deliver on their second day but uh, it is important for us to improve so for example if Currently, it is 20 days, and if you can improve it to 15 days, it is already a good sign. Hmm. Reasonable. Everybody is different. <laughs> I think I found a conflict that might be an illustration of how developer experience not necessarily aligns <clears throat> with, with, with DevOps. And that's this um, T-shaped and the specialization in the silos. And I would argue that people feel more, most productive and, and, and obviously also more um, comfortable in their um, comfort zone, in their silo, in their diff, very deep uh, specialization, right? Uh, but uh, obviously but the, for DevOps, we require other kind of people. We, we require other type of um, specialization and uh, we require T-shaped people. So we require people to get out of their comfort zone when they can actually be a little bit less productive. So here's a conflict that I would be really interested to hear your take on. Then let me ask first why these people need to go out of their comfort zone. Well, the, those to go to go out of their comfort zone because this is where they actually um, can understand the world of other people in in our organization and in the end of the day help make the right decisions for the product for, and 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 for the customer but it not necessarily make them productive in their own world. Oof! Now what you what you are telling me now sounds. Again, like uh, something that we need to discuss with engineering manager of those people, because again, for if if you talk about grow, then yes, of course you can. Again, depends on how you measure your productivity. Productivity is not a one thing. It's, it's, it's not only about the way how you deliver things. It is also about the way how you grow, how you teach others, for example. And of course, for example, yes, when you get again a new engineer and you are a mentor of this engineer, you will spend quite a lot of time on mentorship. And so you might feel not productive because you don't deliver values anymore. But on the other hand, the more like experienced you become, the better you understand that uh, mentorship is even maybe even more important because now another person depends on you. 
So yes, I mean, of course, productivity and just like engineering productivity or the number of deployments you make or the, the time that you spend before you start working on the ticket and then deploy it to production is not an only measurement that you need to make. Okay, makes sense. So yeah, I just jumped on, on this because that was a very easy target to attack. If you say what you care about is how fast people start writing code, then obviously it's very easy to say that, well, Writing code is is not the only the only thing that need to a uh, to take care to to care about. So that that makes sense. So you're saying, uh, in the end of the day, the best m way to measure developer experience is by measuring uh, the core values of DevOps in your organization, which I agree is a kind of a related measure. But I still thought you might have something which is more explicitly related to developer experience maybe maybe well, how how happy the engineers are yes of course we do a lot of surveys and a lot of measurements of that um also if you talk about for example if you talk about user experience if we offer a tool that has web interface of course we also collect some analytics from those tools and also trying to understand how people use it if people use it in the way how they expected it or if people do something we didn't expect so of course it means in this case that we need to improve um, this particular user interface and this particular mm -hmm. tool um, yeah, so of course, yes, we do we do quite a lot of things in terms of that, not only just like measurements of uh, specific phases of, of software. Yeah. One, one interesting thing is that uh, I, I mentioned before that journey mapping or, or uh, like user journey, customer journey, engineering journey. And what is important is, for example, when you see, when you ask people how do they like our tools and how do they like the experience overall, and if you see what someone voted, uh, like, uh, for example, I don't know, three out of 10 or four out of 10, it's a good sign that you need to go to this person and do that uh, journey mapping with them to understand what are their pain points, what we want to change. It makes sense. So, so it's kind of we, we're measuring two things. We're measuring how happy are engineers and if they manage to do the right thing. And the combination of those two is actually what uh, the, the pinnacle of, of developer experience, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think on this uh, very reassuring and optimistic note <laughs> that now we know how happy engineers look like and what they need to to deliver. Uh, I want to th thank our guest. Uh, thank you very much, Elena, for coming to the DevOps Speakeasy. Uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. That's our pleasure. And uh, thank you, Kat, for co-hosting it with me as usual. My name is Baruch, and our Twitter handles were on your screen your, this entire time. So don't forget to follow us. Don't forget to follow the DevOps Speakeasy on Twitter to get notifications on new episodes. The video will also be in JFrog YouTube channel, and the podcast itself will hit your podcast players sometime uh, soon. So with that, thank you very much, and bye-bye.